Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, everyone. Today is October 29th, 2017. Charles Marshall here, sponsored by Neil Garfield on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. I am an attorney here in Southern California, broadcasting live. Good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast, and good evening to those of you in the East. In this episode... Bill Padalo once again joins me to discuss the tactics J.P. Morgan Chase uses to foreclose on homes, including the use of bank witnesses who have essentially no knowledge of the loan and no knowledge of the loan at issue. Uh, you know, other than what they view on a computer screen. This show, as always is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of generous donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated. And you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.LivingLies.com. Dot wordpress.com Bill, great to have you again on the show. Thanks, Charles. Good to be here with you once again. Right. So now today we're going to be talking in part about some depositions and one of these in particular I think uh, has a lot of implications for how Chase gets around all kinds of norms of court rules and, and basically is, is able to finesse the legal system in, in ways that hurt borrowers and in ways that these depositions help counteract. Uh, would be appreciated if you could tell the listeners about, about one in, deposition in particular. There's a couple we're going to discuss. Well, yeah, the uh, where we talked a little bit last week and where we left off, um, we had a couple of depositions. One was the McCormick deposition, and the other was the um, uh, Randall deposition in the Fox case, where the stipulation um, of the infamous Investor Code A01 came out of. Um, there are plenty more, and uh, 
there's there's definitely a fact pattern that plays itself out like a, um, uh, a a tape over and over and over in all of these cases and 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 that essentially is and you kind of used the term last week filibuster which is a which is an excellent term for what they try to do when you go into these depositions but it really is a, a an effort in futility in terms of uh, trying to get and extracting information, specific information, out of these witnesses because they um, appear to be very well coached uh, by their counsel on, on exactly what to say and what to deflect. And the vast majority of time spent and in, in the questions asked in these depositions are uh, a whole bunch of I don't know, and uh, they have no answers for any of the specific questions that um, are asked of them. So uh what i would like to probably get a little bit of input on your end as the attorney who's conducted probably many depositions or sat through many of them is indeed yeah is um when you get into these situations where you start to put the pressure on and ask the questions and these people are supposed to be the person most knowledgeable the one that is supposed to understand these systems and is supposed to have this information and when they say when you when the questions are asked well if you don't know the answer to these questions who at chase who up the chain can answer these questions is there anyone and the answers in these depositions like the mccormick deposition is there isn't anybody i don't know of anybody who can answer the question so it's kind of uh ludicrous to believe that you're asking these questions of a Chase representative who is responsible for verification of the affidavits and the indebtedness and those types of things in the case, and then they revert back to on their heels and simply say, I don't know what any of this stuff means, and I don't even know if there isn't anybody who can answer the question. So there, take that. And so from my position is okay what do you do next with that and 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 what's frustrating is what i'm seeing and what i read and and uh in, in these cases is that there doesn't seem to be um an attempt after that fact to go for the jugular they tend to you know the pro, the people who are prosecuting these things and asking the questions the attorneys unfortunately a lot of times they kind of take their foot off the accelerator instead of honing in and really going for the jugular on this stuff. And I'm, I'm perplexed as to why this stuff continuously just kind of fizzles out and doesn't lead to more um, aggressive uh, motions before the court or whatnot to really expose the fact that they're lying. And, and I think what's, or being evasive and playing coy, but I think what's what we're getting to here is now with some of these depositions, we can clearly now show not only just inconsistent uh, testimony, but we can clearly show that some of these witnesses are flat out lying, and this goes to the heart of credibility, uh, and and it goes to you know making your arguments um, and saying, listen, these parties aren't entitled to any presumptions of truth here. They're clearly playing games. They're clearly playing coy, and you can. And, and, and anybody with um, any semblance of a, of, of a brain who reads this stuff can start to now see the games that that they're playing here, and uh, and that's why um, I think now more than ever, uh, extreme pressure really has to be applied above and beyond these 
uh, depositions were. Yeah, I, mean, I can I can almost predict them now. Uh, when you go in, it's it's the same thing repeatedly over and over and over. It's a game plan and a strategy that um, it's it. They just do the same thing. We know nothing. They're the Sergeant Schultz of this operation, and they literally claim they know nothing. Oh, I understand what you're saying, Bill. I mean, it's it's kind of a travesty that the legal system is is in this box where this sort of thing goes on, and yet the the counterpunch, the counter approach is is so often not not put forward in a way that allows our side to prevail. I mean, for instance, I think one of the fundamentals in, in these types of depositions where where the deposed party and and this is a good party to depose in these types of situations, where and when the deposed party is a major declarant presented in the pleadings previously in the case. Uh, typically, you'll see a declaration related to a certain assignment of interest, particularly a recorded assignment of interest. And by deposing that individual declarant, what, what we can do from our side is rather than just ask a laundry list of questions to which we will inevitably get I don't know or I don't remember is also a second favorite response typically. Rather than simply leaving on the record those responses, one way of honing the discovery presentation from our side to make it more effective is to essentially break out the evidence rules and go point by point with uh, essentially a follow-up question, which can't be considered, by the way, cumulative, because the way that would be framed is one would ask questions about each element of what has to go into a declaration or affidavit. And then, of course, the response from the other side would be, I don't know, or I don't remember, or I'm not sure. And then you essentially break down the elements of a declaration and what makes it legally admissible at trial. And you have on the record at the end of that uh, colloquy between the parties, you have on the record essentially a documented answer that they don't have admissible evidence. And as, I mean, I say this not all the time, but sometimes, it can be frustrating for our side because we have to do so much well and so much right and so much thoroughly to even have a good shot at prevailing. But look, that's the way the system is set up here. So we need to respond accordingly. And if one were to go into a deposition and present the framing that I've just presented, what we would set up is the possibility of using a motion for summary judgment to knock out that declaration and potentially uh, allow our, our clients to prevail. Um, so just to give a quick backdrop, what Bill and I are discussing right now, it's, it's applicable really in the judicial and the non-judicial foreclosure realm because deposition approaches can be quite similar, uh, whether you're on the defense or plaintiff side. But for purposes 
of of this show, the West Coast Foreclosure Show, we've got non-judicial foreclosure issues as a major component to what we see out here. So these particular depositions, they're, they're coming from the plaintiff's side where the plaintiff is the borrower. And what we're trying to do is the mirror image of what the institutional defendants are trying to do. The reason that depositions and discovery are used is to create evidence to prevail at trial or otherwise. The way you can prevail otherwise is with a motion for summary judgment. And as Neil has mentioned many times, if you don't file a motion for summary judgment, which you may not have the evidence to put forward, frankly, in these plaintiff's cases sometimes to warrant that. But if our side doesn't file the motion for summary judgment, and again, oftentimes we don't have the evidence clearly developed enough to do that, but where we can do that, at least have a plausible basis for it, we make it less likely that the other side will prevail with their motion for summary judgment. Because I can assure you, and I can assure you unfortunately, that in these these joust and, and cases where the borrowers on the plaintiff side and the institutional defendants are on the other side here in California and elsewhere in the non judicial western states, what typically happens is the institutional defendants will put discovery and they'll put a deposition on involving our plaintiff borrowers and then they'll use what comes out of those depositions, however marginal, however not even fully supportive of their case, to weave into their motion for summary judgment. And if we can break down the declaration in a motion for summary judgment, we have a real shot at either improving our chances at trial a long shot of winning the motion for summary judgment and a better shot at preventing the opposition from winning their motion for summary judgment, which it's, it's almost mathematical to expect these institutional defendants to file a motion for summary judgment in these cases. If the case gets passed to mirror a motion to dismiss at some point, they're likely to file a motion for summary judgment and they're likely to do that after discovery and depositions. So our side just needs to become more honed in how we present our depositions and discovery. So in the, in the case you were just mentioning, uh, Bill, did you see any variant answers or do you, do you see a path to, to get to somewhere along the lines of what I'm describing? Well, the reality of it is, and, and you don't have to take my opinion on this uh, statement, is that the opposition doesn't have any any witnesses who can come in with personal knowledge to anything. All they're going to do is look at a computer screen and regurgitate what they're told to say. And it's only based on a computer screen of what they're looking at. And when I say that, you know, it, this isn't just my opinion, but this this was known well on, even back in around 2007 in Texas when the uh, Supreme Court there was commissioned to put together a task force of attorneys and lawyers and judges and everybody to discuss 
how to deal with this impending foreclosure uh, crisis that was about to hit the judicial system. Um, there's a transcript from that proceeding where one of the top judges, and I'm not sure if he was one of the Supreme Court judges or not, that was sitting on the panel. He said, "Listen, how are we going to how are we going to address the fact that there there really isn't anybody." any witness who could come in with any personal knowledge to attest to any of this stuff because no one knows who owns it. So what are we going to do about that? And they have this discussion about it point blank and clear. In fact, one of the largest uh, foreclosure mill uh, attorney firms that has that is, is taken advantage of the whole foreclosure crisis, uh, Barrett, uh, the last name of the attorney, you know, he's, he says right in the, in the transcript, he says, listen, there's no way to trace and track who really owns this. The closest thing you're ever going to know uh, who you could even call a creditor lender is the servicer, and that's what people are just going to assume because that's who you send your payments to. But there isn't any way to decipher who owns any of this stuff. And, and, and this, is, this is now played out, and it's well known. Um, you know, even the DOJ's unsealing of the case in Northern California here a year or so ago where the FBI came in and said, even the FBI can't trace any of this stuff. You know, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, uh, where, you know, uh, Andy Dufresne, the character in there, he creates this fictitious uh, character, uh, Randall Stevens, to to launder the money for the warden uh, at the prison. And and when he's sitting there having this discussion with his friend Red in the library, you know, and he says, uh, you know, you have to understand how the system works and where the cracks lie. He says, uh, you know, the, Mr. Stevens has a birth certificate, a driver's license, a social security number. If they ever tried tracing any of these accounts, they're going to wind up chasing a figment of my imagination. And that's really what we're up against now. And now it's getting even more perverse in many ways with all these newfangled so-called trusts that are coming out uh, and appearing on these resecuritizations and these debt, you know, uh, bulk uh, non-performing loan uh, debt buyer purchases and whatnot. Because the investors, there is no paper trail to trace any of this stuff. It's all a figment of the imaginations of the people who are creating this. And what what the investors and what people are buying now are simply revenue streams, okay? I mean, and and they're revenue streams that are, you know, offshoots of of servicer advances and mortgage servicing rights and insurance stuff. It's so convoluted. Um, in fact, just before the show tonight, I received a uh, an interrogatory response that was uh, forced upon. Um, U.S. Bank as trustee of one of these newfangled trusts um, uh, where the court ordered them to answer the question as to who, uh, how much was paid for this loan and, and answer the details surrounding the purchase of this one specific loan. And their answer, based on a motion to compel, they come back and says, plaintiff, and I'm quoting here, plaintiff cannot ascertain the specific amount for which this loan was purchased. And they go on and say that, you know, it was purchased in a big bulk, and, and they, can't, they can't answer the question, essentially. And, uh, and this is what they're getting away with. So when we go into these depositions and we start asking for, you know, all this information and everything, 
as, when we're talking about the chase fact pattern here, uh, like we talked last week, now we know that they have information in specific areas of their servicing platforms, and we can now know where to precisely go after and attack this stuff. But the overall answers to any of this stuff is, is repeatedly, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what any of this means, I don't know what these screenshot codes mean, I don't know any of it, um, but it's, but here's who owns it, the, the, you know, the, the coached uh, uh, you know, points that they're hammered into them of, as to what they can answer and what they can't, but um, it's, it's sort of the same repeated thing. Now, what I had mentioned last week, too, is you have to remember with those consent judgments that these witnesses were supposed to be trained. Anybody who's verifying or presenting certifications, declarations, anything into any of these court cases, there have to be documentation to show that they have received training, the kinds of training, and they have to have certificates of that training uh, placed in their employee files uh, to show exactly you know, what it is that they were trained on. Now, what's surprising, and nobody's really pushing this very often, is that the witnesses come in, and when you lay out these uh, investor codes and the screenshots that they're allegedly supposed to have been trained on, their answers are, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what it means, I don't know. And so uh, it, it's, it's getting a little old and stale, but, I, but there's a reason why they don't know. I mean, it's because they, they, they can't, they don't have personal knowledge of anything. They can only say what their boss is telling them to say of what shows up on a specific area of that screen, and they're not to say anything more. And that's it. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. Well, and you're, touch, you're touching on something very fundamental here, and it goes to first principles of, of evidence. And here we're talking about the business record exception, and there's, there's similar exceptions that could come into play here. The business exceptions, uh, the business records exception to the hearsay rule, and just a, a brief not even a tutorial, just a, a kind of mini commentary on the hearsay rule for for all of our listeners. The easiest way to explain hearsay is if you want to introduce something in, a, in an evidentiary proceeding, which really we're talking about trial here, or possibly a lesser evidence hearing, but it's almost always going to be trial. Unless you have the person who said those words in court that day ready to testify, that's presumptively going to be considered hearsay. And now you've got dozens of exceptions to that. One way you get that kind of testimony into court when the quote-unquote declarant is not available to testify about the exact same content on the part. Is, is you – what you do is you – you bring in an exception, in this case, the business records exception. And what will happen with that is if the declarant can speak with knowledge, not just personal knowledge, but background knowledge, there's an expectation that whoever presents this, this exception language through a business record they have to have training. This is what Bill is talking about. They have to have expertise. They sometimes have to have established credentialing 
and these really specialized areas. And their expertise has to be related in detail in the declaring document. It's typically a preamble and at the beginning of a declaration or affidavit. And as Bill is indicating, if the entirety of the declarant's response in a deposition is, I don't know, I don't remember, clearly it's not legitimate hearsay and it should be thrown out. And it should not be available for a motion for summary judgment. And it should be available to be used against the party who has this declaration in our side's motion for summary judgment. And the, the, the other fundamental thing here is when you're in these depositions, this is for both attorneys out there listening and anybody in pro per or pro se. When you're in this type of deposition, you need to ask the declarant, what is your background expertise for making this declaration? How are you trained to have knowledge? It's not like they can just pull someone off the street who's there for a day to man the phones for basic reception. They have to be able to show when they do this type of declaration that not only are they familiar with the records, they know what to look for. They know what to observe, what to exclude, what to focus on as an important item that, that should be there to essentially affirm the validity of the document that they're looking at. And yet, so often, these questions aren't asked, or if they are asked, our side doesn't get acceptable answers. And when that happens, we need to deal with it. Um, I mean, also going to first principles, Bill, uh, one of the things that's striking about the, uh, the AMBAC versus U.S. Bank that's another matter you've been involved in closely. Uh, there's a reference to the origination of loans. Um, if U.S. Bank originated the loans at issue, why were they never named as payee on the note or mortgage on the mortgage? I mean, that's the, the interesting things. We, we, we all know that U.S. Bank, the Securitized Trust, will come into these situations and you know, like New York Bank Mellon, they sometimes claim to be originators. Usually they don't, but they sometimes do. But they're never the payee on the note or mortgage. I mean, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that kind of goes to the heart of a lot of the uh, early days of, of who was really funding and originating this stuff behind the scenes. Um, and it was usually never the part. Uh, party that was named on the on the contracts themselves, but what, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> what's interesting about that AMBAC case, um, who's going up against U.S. Bank, <clears throat> is that they make a couple of um, accusations in there. That <clears throat> one of them is, uh, of course, you know, AMBAC being the insurance carrier and whatnot. Uh, they're accusing U.S. Bank as the trustee of of these trusts that. There were many instances that they found where U.S. Bank uh, knew that they had never taken control or possession of any of the original notes and the collateral files and the documents that they uh, represented that they were the custodian of or that they took these documents. So right there, you've got, you know, one party telling, you know, saying that U.S. Bank uh, 
misrepresented. They don't have any knowledge of where these original notes are, which is very uh, interesting. But also, what I'm st- what I'm starting to find out, and what come out, of, what came out of that case, is that they're being accused of uh, dipping their hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, and buying these. Uh, assets within the trust and helping themselves to those assets when AMBAC is saying, listen, your role is simply as a trustee and nothing more. You weren't allowed to help yourself and buy and sell and start trading and profiting off this stuff because now we've got a problem with um, you violating your agreements as to your role. And then they accuse U.S. Bank of uh, not verifying who the certificate holders or the investors are behind these trusts, and therefore they're prosecuting these cases without being indemnified by any certificate holders behind the curtains. And AMBAC is saying, hey, guess what, U.S. Bank, I think you've subjected yourself to being attacked uh, personally, having personal liability, and not just acting as a trustee. And this is sort of more clues as to now, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there um, have probably seen assignments that show U.S. Bank as owner trustee, or you'll, you'll start to see U.S. Bank uh, in trust taking all kinds of different varied roles as a trustee, as title trustee, and all this sort of thing. Well, now it's becoming evident that they're not just a trustee who says, we don't know anything, go talk to the service, or so on and so forth. They're actually... Um, helping themselves and and profiting and taking these assets uh, like like a vulture, you know, is hovering over a carcass of a zebra. <laughs> you know, uh, they're all feasting off this stuff, and now everybody's going after each other. So there's a lot of interesting things that have come out of this AMBAC case that uh, I'm sure we'll have some more fodder in, in, in future shows. Well, and Bill, you've also got a U.S. Uh, Bill, you also have a U.S. Bank intersection with your own uh, unlawful detainer situation. Uh, you'd rather not get into that. That's understandable. If you have any inclination to address that, I think there's some interesting angles there. No, I, I, I certainly don't have any problem <laughs> discussing this one. I, I probably have one of the longest-running UD actions going right now, Bez. It began in 2015 in Montana, and uh, it's still just kind of sitting there uh, uh, with with a motion pending before the court uh, since June. But uh, what I essentially did is uh, the the uh, judge in my case had stayed the proceeding pending my appeal with the Ninth Circuit, and that in and of, of itself, I think you agreed, was a, kind of a rare thing to have these uh, UD actions stayed. But anyway, I think apparently the judge saw that there was some potential merit or issues that still needed to, he was just going to let the Ninth Circuit decide. And when the Ninth Circuit had finally ruled on the, on the case, they essentially unpublished it, and they really didn't touch on any of the issues. They just shoved it under the rug. Uh, U.S. Bank, as the plaintiff in my UD, filed uh, a notice to the court to say, hey, okay, the appeal is over. Let's get this show on the road, and let's get, get to uh, evicting Padalo here. Uh, I shot back with a motion to the court to have U.S. Bank as the plaintiff show their authority and prove their authority to have the law firm representing the plaintiff 
uh, in the matter just to prove their authority to represent. And I simply pointed out with evidence that there was no retainer agreement, nothing between the named plaintiff in the case and U.S. Bank, um, and therefore, uh, and, and take one step back too, is U.S. Bank, there was a, a WAMU trust identified in my case. And so in order for them to kind of split apart the U.S. All Bank the from the bank. trust, they, uh, they had to take a position, a wrong position, a false position, but this is the one they had to take in Montana. They were saying, listen, U.S. Bank, we're the ones who acquired the loan, not the trust. We are, we're a corporation and we acquired it. Well, my position is if you're going to take that position, as a, that, that you're a corporation in this case and as plaintiff, you have to be represented by counsel. Uh, you have to have an attorney. Well, I filed that motion, and their response came back and essentially conceded the point that they don't have any retainer agreement or anything with the named plaintiff in the action. They simply said that uh, SL or, uh, SPS, a servicer that is, is orchestrating the shots behind the scenes, well, wh who's SPS? I mean, they've never been my servicer. They've never been anybody. They're completely unknown to the case. Well, I think so. Anyhow, that motion has been sitting since June, and, and it continues to play out. But my point is, is that they continue to play these games, and I've said all along that U.S. Bank, um, you know, they – they know nothing in a lot of these cases, and yet they're prosecuting them through counsel in jurisdictions all over the country. And I'm saying you have to go in I'd re and, and, and challenge that authority because the, 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 the named plaintiff doesn't have any knowledge, hasn't verified the actions, has no knowledge of the actions, has no retainers with the attorneys. It's all being orchestrated by unknown third parties behind the scenes. So it'll be interesting to see how this uh, ruling eventually comes out, but um, I, I, I clearly think that um, I, I'm on to something here, and hopefully, hopefully, I'll get a positive result. Well, I think that's a great angle that you played because it's absolutely the case that any corporate institutional player in any proceeding, whether they're on the plaintiff's or the defendant's side, as you rightly point out, they must have corporate counsel presenting their position. And the failure of that is, is fundamental, but yet our side has to raise the, that kind of issue. If it's not raised, we, we cannot count on judges to do their job and, and call attention to a patently violative standard like that. I mean, it's absolutely true that the judges are supposed to be referees, but their neutrality is supposed to shall we say, be pended if there's an egregious violation of procedural or other protocol in the legal proceedings. And clearly it goes to the fundamental of the legal proceeding itself if the parties aren't presenting their, their personhood properly. Well, so yeah, and, and, and Charles, it goes, one, it, it, it goes one step further in my case, and this is what I pointed out, and I gave it right, put it right before the judge's uh, eyes. As I said, listen, I served discovery on this plaintiff, and this plaintiff came back with specific answers in discovery as though the answers were coming from U.S. Bank, as though U.S. Bank was answering all the questions. And one of the things that was very 
uh, interesting and, and, and foolish, whatever you want to call it, is that U.S. Bank denied the very existence of the trust, in my case, that it claims to represent as a fiduciary. I mean, you, you literally can't make this up. I mean, they came back and they denied it was a Delaware statutory trust. They denied it was an irrevocable trust. They denied all this stuff. And they're answering the questions from as U.S. Bank. And I pointed out to the court, I said, look, they've just admitted they have no relationship or connection to U.S. Bank. And now they've, rep, they've, they've misrepresented their discovery in this matter as though it was coming from U.S. Bank. So, And in fact, you don't have yeah. to name the law firm, but in fact, the discovery was coming and being promulgated by some institutional law firm who's like routinely retained by U.S. Bank to handle other foreclosure matters. I mean, is that how this uh, is this is. Is, is that how this shaped out? Is this, yeah, I mean, is this, this is a regional. Uh, this is a regional mill, RCO, Ruth Crabtree Olson, that handles a lot of the stuff in the Pacific Northwest region. But uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I, I can't believe that they're this ignorant. I mean, I've, I've been putting some of these issues uh, in front of them for quite some time. Um, playing dumb. I mean, it was really interesting that the response Please came back in an affidavit. It came back in an affidavit from the attorney, and she simply it just admitted, nope. uh, just conceded. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a retainer with U.S. Bank. So, uh, well, what's okay. fascinating about this is this does not speak of ignorance on their part, as you well mentioned. This speaks of arrogance on their part, as as well exemplified. And this is what we see time and again from our side is. Again, we have to structure everything just so and pretty much just right. The other side, the institutional players, they'll get a lot of flexibility, and we have to call them on everything, or so often the judges will just let it slip through. I mean, where is your case procedurally? Is there, is there a trial date set, or are you in a position where you might be able to do a motion for summary judgment, or where does that all stand? Well, uh after they noticed that the, to, to, they wanted to proceed, um, and I filed this motion, um, it's been it's been fully briefed since June, because really the outcome of this is is very simple. If if the plaintiff has filed an action as a corporation and they're not represented by counsel, um, the, the case under Montana should should technically just be dismissed, um, because there's no, they're not there's, the plaintiff isn't represented, um, and 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 it hasn't appeared really. Um, and so I'm just kind of waiting for that to happen. I mean, I've got some tricks up my sleeve that uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll show later on once, once we see what the court comes back with here. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention before we run out of time here is that <clears throat> in pressing these witnesses for information and the fact that they don't know anything, and we're talking about the rules of evidence, um, I said this last week, in, in, in many of the cases, all the cases, I'm not aware of any case that I have attested to or have come in and supplied testimony where the opposition has come back in with a witness, an expert of their own, to rebut and refute any of my theories, evidence, opinions, anything. They haven't challenged me, and I, and I'm, and I challenge them. Look, if, 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 if I'm wrong, which I've already been proven to be right with this AO1 where they said I was wrong and I caught them lying, but I'm saying, listen, if I'm wrong bring somebody in here and challenge me on this. Let's go toe-to-toe. 
bring in your own witness and prove me wrong. But instead, the game is simply kill the messenger, you know, motions to strike and, and get rid of the messenger and play all those tactics. But I'm not aware. They haven't challenged me yet to this day with, with any witnesses or any of, anybody of their own to come in and say, listen, Paddle is full of it here. He's, he's wrong, and here's why, and I can have the evidence to prove he's wrong. So, so I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but I'm just saying, uh, look, at, I, I welcome a challenge. Bring it on. But they, uh, they won't do it, and they haven't done it. Well, I think you know and you've implied, and I think you've stated previously, uh, either on the show or, or otherwise in my discussions with you, that they really don't have the evidence to come forward with. But again, even apart from that, this is so emblematic of, of what the institutional players get away with because they so often don't have to present the really refined details and the really elaborated evidentiary forensic trail to show their proper authority. They're, they're, they're basically let by the system, by the courts, by the judges, to present slipshod, uh, indirect, incomplete, conclusory evidence. And on the basis of that type of poor showing, they so often will, will prevail in a motion for summary judgment, or you've seen these yourselves in the uh, proceedings you've consulted on, you know, you'll have an unlawful detainer trial in the last 10 minutes. I mean, that's scary that somebody can be kicked out of their house after such a cursory legal proceeding. Yeah, no, no, ab- absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work um, in the last minutes here, and this is probably a good segue for a couple weeks from now on the next show as we kind of maybe compound on this. But I've done a lot of work on what's called this uh, LSF9 Master Participation Trust, and uh, it's becoming more evident with all the cases that I'm seeing now that I'm involved in around the country. As the evidence comes in and I lay it out on the table, I've, I wrote an article in the uh, back yonder about how this entity uh, is a sham entity. It doesn't exist. It's not a trust that holds or owns anything. And now um, I, I've got a, a lot of compelling evidence to show that U.S. Bank Trust N.A., who claims to be the trustee of this LSF9 Master Participation Trust? Um, that's all—it's all a ruse. It's all a sham. And uh, and now the internal documents that are coming back—they're inconsistent across the board. Um, in other cases, highly redacted. They're a mess. And they're—they're uh, they're so sloppy that I've—I've I've even got a case now where they're claiming in Florida, in a judicial state, where they came in and saying we're the plaintiff holding the note. We own it. And then they, they put a note in where it's got a direct endorsement from uh, uh, an old originator in 1998 to the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. And they're sitting there and they're saying, yeah, we own it, and here's the note. I mean, it's, they are, they, to this day, their sloppiness goes to the heart of the arrogance because they clearly uh, aren't, aren't, aren't concerned. Uh, about about being called on this stuff or being uh, uh, you know hit with sanctions or anything like that, and um, it, this, this one's uh, this one's unfolding and it's going to be a really good subject matter uh, topic in the near future. Um, yes, and this whole this whole issue of sanctions that's another area where 
I think the court really has uh, a lot of need to to address the matter of sanctions much more robustly when they apply to the other side and then use the cautionary principle when it comes to borrowers. Because I have to say, in my experience, sanctions are used, I would even say routinely, uh, by the institutional players, by the attorneys who represent them. The, the sanctions threat and then the actual motion are not uncommon at all. And whether it's an unlawful detainer proceeding or whether it's an unlimited lawsuit, um, I see the threat of sanctions all the time because what, what the institutional players will try to do is, is get our side to concede and admit it everything, you know, while their side will rarely concede or admit much of anything. And on that note, Bill, I appreciate your coming on again today. My pleasure. And Absolutely. And we will be back uh, two weeks from now. And Neil will be back next week for his show. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is.